So if you would turn to Jeremiah chapter 1. And as you're turning to Jeremiah chapter 1, we, we see the banner behind me that says, A cord of three strands is not easily broken. And I don't want to take too much liberty with a passage of Scripture, but I think that there is a threefold cord of missions. I think there's a threefold strand of missions, so to speak. And if we get those three strands right, it will be hard to break that missional strand. In fact, I believe if we get those threefold cords of missions right, we may see the advancement of the gospel from our communities to the least reached peoples on planet Earth, uh, maybe in a way like never before. And why is this important? It's important because Jesus himself said that the gospel would be proclaimed to all the peoples, all the nations, and then the end will come. He's left us here not to sit, soak, and sire away in our blessed assurance. He's, he's left us here to be a catalyst to aggressively and intentionally advance the gospel to the least reached peoples on planet Earth. I, I, I want to take that liberty as well because last year, if you remember, the theme of the association was based on Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 7. So I'm going to preach to you some of last year's sermon and some of this year all mixed together into one. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse number 7 is what we're going to be looking at tonight. And I want us to see this threefold strand of missions, this threefold cord of missions, and, and here are the three strands. Number one, going, and we're going to spend most of our time looking at that in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 7, and then praying, and then giving. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 7 says this, But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Hear very clearly in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 7. The theme last year was go and speak. The, the theme here in Jeremiah 1 7 is to go. And the first cord or, of the first strand of this threefold cord of missions is going. And again, we're going to spend most of our time here, so don't panic when you hear we have two more things to look at when we get to the end of it. But I want us to think about the importance and the necessity and the command for us to be about going, uh, specifically as we see here in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 7. I want us to ask three questions about going. Number one, I want us to ask, who has he sent? Who has he sent? We see there in verse number 7 that it's clearly Jeremiah that he's speaking to here. He says, everywhere I send you, Jeremiah, you shall go. And, and all that I command you, you, Jeremiah, shall speak. He's speaking here. He's commissioning here. He's commanding here, Jeremiah, to go. He's, he's sending him. And, and Jeremiah does what we do. He comes up with an excuse. And apparently the excuse is, I'm too young to do this, Lord. I'm not the right guy. I'm not old enough to do what you are commanding me to do. And God was quick to dismiss his excuse. He says, do not say I am a youth. Because everywhere I send you, you're going to go. And everything I tell you to speak, you're going to speak. And the fact of the matter tonight is whether we are, are young or whether we are old or whether we're somewhere in between, we cannot, hear me loudly, we cannot use our age we cannot use our abilities or our inabilities as an excuse 
not to be obedient to God's call and God's command upon our lives. You may think, well, God hasn't sent me anywhere. And sure, He sent you somewhere. And He's made it abundantly clear if we just open up the Word of God and read it. In fact, if we just started in Matthew, when we read the Gospel of Matthew, we come to the end of that Gospel, and in Matthew chapter 28, very familiar passage of Scripture to us, maybe so familiar we don't think about it too often as applying to us, but it says very clearly, Jesus speaking to His followers in Matthew chapter 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. But in worst case scenario, let's assume that your Bible was, you know, you got it at a thrift store and somebody had ripped Matthew out of it. And you have to start at Mark. That's okay. Mark... We get to the end of Mark, chapter 16 and verse 15. Jesus said to them, go into your community. No, no. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Let's assume it's even worse than that. And you you went to a really poor thrift store. And you, and you found a Bible in Matthew and Mark. You're both falling out of it. Well, you, if you read the Gospel of Luke, you get to the end of God, Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47. Jesus said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You skip Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you get to John, and you come to John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, if you have a really bad habit, like I do, and you don't finish the book, He did did us a favor, and He put it at the very beginning of Acts. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts. Of the earth. It's clear. He wants us to get this. We have been sent. And we can't brush this off. We can't pass this off. We can't excuse ourselves. Listen to what Jim Elliott said in the 1950s as he was going down into Ecuador to reach out to a dangerous, unreached tribe called the, the Wadanis. He wrote this in the 1950s. Consider the call from the throne above. Go ye. And from round about. Come over here and help us. And even the call from the damned souls below. Send Lazarus to my brothers that they come not to this place. Impelled them by these voices. I dare not stay home while Ketuas perish. So what if the well-fed church in the homeland needs stirring? They have the scriptures, Moses, and the prophets, and a whole lot more. Their condemnation is written on their bank books and in the dust on their Bible covers. American believers have sold their souls to mammon, and God has His rightful way of dealing with those who succumb to the Spirit of Laodicea. This was in the 1950s. What do you say about us? When we have reduced missions 
to something that we need a special call for, what we do is we, we, uh, we justify reading Matthew and getting to the end and saying, well, that's not for me. When we relegate missions to some special calling, we read Mark and Luke and John and, and we get to the end and we say, well, that's not for me. When we relegate missions to a special calling, we read Acts 1.8 and say, well, that's not for me. That's for those people, those special people, those missionaries out there. When we relegate missions to a calling, we forget that it's a command. Who is he sent? He sent every person in this room, every person watching at Cowan, every follower of Jesus Christ is a sent one. Where should we go? Well, Jeremiah gets a pretty clear answer. The Lord said to me, do not say I'm a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go. Jeremiah says, where should I go? And God says, everywhere I send you. It's enough information for you, Jeremiah. You go everywhere I send you. Well, we want all the details. We want to be able to put together a budget. We want to be able to put together a plan. No, everywhere I send you, you will go. Some of you may be saying, okay, I see from Scripture we're commanded to be about going to get the gospel out. But where should I go? Everywhere he sends you. He hasn't told me where to go. He hasn't sent me anywhere. Sure he has. Remember Acts 1 8? He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem and Judea. And not just in Jerusalem and Judea, but also in Samaria. And even to the remotest parts of the earth. Jerusalem and Judea was home for these guys. Jerusalem and Judea was filled with people who looked like them, smelled like them, talked like them, knew what they knew, had the same backgrounds that they had, ate the same types of food. It was the people they were comfortable with. And Jesus says, you need to go to Jerusalem. You need to go into Judea. You need to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And they did. And on Pentecost, 3,000 people were born again. And not long after that, a couple of thousand more were born again until they overran Jerusalem with the gospel in the church. But Jesus didn't stop there. He went on and said Samaria. And that probably got a little bit of a twinge out of them because Samaria was not filled with people who looked like them, talked like them, acted like them, ate like them. Samaria was filled with half-Jews, half-Gentiles, people that they despised, people that they didn't, you know, they, they went around that community. They walked around Samaria. They didn't go through Samaria. It's people not like us. You know, they're, they're, they're not like us. They don't eat the things that we eat. They don't act the way that we act. They don't talk the way that we talk. They, they come from a different background than we come from. They don't believe like we believe. Our Samaria. If you drive to Nashville, did you know that in Nashville, the largest Kurdish population in the United States is in Nashville, Tennessee? The largest, largest Kurdish population, 10 to 15,000 Kurds, live in Nashville, Tennessee. You drive three and a half to four hours from here to a little town called Clarkston, stuck in the middle of Atlanta, Georgia's three miles square. There are one, three miles square, there are 120 different people groups represented in that three mile square. You don't have to get on a plane. 
You don't have to have a passport. You just have to have a heart for the nations willing to go to Samaria, willing to go to the places where people live and breathe and act and live out their lives who aren't like you. You've been sent. You've been sent to your Jerusalem and Judea. You've been sent to your Samaria. And listen, you have been sent to the remotest parts of the earth. We know Matthew 28 so well. I want, to, I want you to listen to this more carefully this time. And I want you to hear what the great commission of Jesus is. Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Nations, pantata ethne, people groups, distinct individual groups of people. It's not geographical boundaries. Those change all the time. It's people groups. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now I want you to hear me. This is not a commission to get the gospel to as many people as possible. Now, it's not wrong for us to get the gospel to as many people as possible. We should want to get the gospel to as many people as possible. But that's not what Jesus is commissioning us to do in Matthew 28. He's not commissioning us to get the gospel to as many people as possible. He's commissioning us to get the gospel to as many peoples as possible. He's commissioning us to get the gospel to as many pantata ethne as possible. So when you get bogged down in Jerusalem and Judea and you don't get to the peoples that Jesus is wanting to get the gospel to, the people groups that Jesus is wanting to get the gospel to, you're not obeying the Great Commission. That's why you see the early church moving fast through places. They would reach people. They would disciple people a while. They would plant a church and they would move on to the next place and leave that church there to do the ministry of their Jerusalem and Judea. They're trying to obey the Great Commission and get the gospel to as many people groups as possible. There are roughly 6,000 unreached people groups on this earth today in 2020. Roughly 2 billion people who are unreached. And I know of one individual who hiked up the Himalayas and asked a man drinking a Coca-Cola if he had ever heard the name of Jesus. And he said no. And it should shame us all that he heard of Coca-Cola before he heard of Jesus. Now, I want you to hear unreached does not mean unsaved. Because some of you may be thinking, well, I work with a lot of unreached people. I know a lot of unreached people. I live in a neighborhood with a lot of unreached people. Unreached doesn't just mean unsaved. Unsaved people are everywhere. Unreached means that they have little to no access to the gospel. So there may be some believers among them, but there are insufficient resources to effectively reach their people. Let me give you a real-to-life true illustration. There is in northern Yemen a people group of about 8 million people. 8 million people in this one people group. And there are 20 to 30 believers from among those 8 million. 20 to 30 believers. We have Sunday school classes at First Baptist Tullahoma that are bigger than 20 to 30 people. And maybe you have Sunday school, Sunday school classes that are bigger than 20 to 30 people. Now think about this. The population of Tennessee is roughly 7 million people. 
Imagine if that one Sunday school class, that one Sunday school class at First Baptist Tullahoma were the only believers in all of Tennessee. That's what you have in Yemen. And that's what you call unreached people. Six thousand unreached people groups. There's somewhere between twelve hundred and three thousand unreached, unengaged people groups. Unreached, unengaged people groups mean there's zero, none, not believers, no missionary, no pastor, no church, no hope, no hope. We need to ask ourselves this question that I once heard. Does anyone deserve to hear the gospel twice while there are still people who have never heard it once? We must assume responsibility for more than our Jerusalem and Judea and even our Samaria. We must be obedient to what Christ commanded us to do or we can move from Acts 1.8 to Acts 8.1. We may be seeing that happen right now before our very eyes. Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. But the disciples bogged down there in Jerusalem and Judea. had a good thing going. A lot of people were coming to faith. There was a comfortable place to minister. They knew. They knew the language. They knew the people. They knew the culture. They knew everything. Everything was going so great. But they stayed in Jerusalem and Judea and they forgot about Samaria and the remotest parts of the earth. There's plenty plenty still to do in Jerusalem, Jesus. Plenty still to do. So we come to Acts 8.1 and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered. They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Why did they have to be scattered? Because they hadn't gone. Where Jesus had sent them. Now here we are in the year 2020, 21st century Western culture with more resources at our disposal than any Christian civilization before us. And we find ourselves guilty of the same thing. Don't you think Jesus won't squeeze us out? Don't think Jesus won't squeeze us out if we are unwilling to go. Where do we go? Wherever he sends us. Where does he send us? Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Every nation, tongue, tribe, and people group. What has he sent us to do as we think about going? Look at what he says again in verse 7. The Lord said to me, Do not say I'm a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. What has he sent us to do? He sent us to Speak. Speak the gospel. Speak the good news of Jesus Christ. Speak the good news that Jesus, who was God in the flesh, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to held on to, but he humbled himself and became a man, born of a virgin in Bethlehem. And he was obedient, perfectly righteous. He lived the perfect, righteous life. Life that God demands we live. The perfect, sinless, spotless life that God demands of He was obedient, and He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
He not only lived the life that God required of us, but He went to the cross and He died the death that our sin deserves, that your sin deserves, that my sin deserves. So that anyone who would hear and believe and turn away from their sin, trusting in Him, could be reconciled to the Father and be given eternal life. That's good news. And that's what we've been sent to speak. That's what Jesus came to speak. Mark 1, 39. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. Jesus' ministry was characterized by going and speaking, going and preaching. And if we're going to be obedient to the going part of this three-chord Threefold cord. We must go and speak. Go and preach. And if we're going to preach, we need to understand what preaching means. Now, I'm going to tell you, this, is, this was one of those things that blew my mind, okay? It's kind of messed with my mind. Think about what you think of when you think of preaching. You probably think of this. You know, some guy standing behind a platform, talking way too long, way too loud... And people sleeping or or reading their Bible or doodling or scrolling Facebook or whatever it is people do while we're up here bloviating behind the platform in our air-conditioned buildings or in our case out in the park in the fountain. We've been doing that since March. Haven't missed a Sunday, but it's been interesting during this time. Just giving this lecture, you know, from the platform. But I, I did a little study of the word preach in the New Testament. Preach, preaching, preached. It's used roughly 109 times in the New Testament. And get this. Almost every single time the word preach, preach, preaching is used, it either explicitly or implicitly points to proclaiming the gospel message in the wilderness, in the streets, in the marketplace, to the poor, to the lost, and the hurting. Only three or four times... Does it for certain seem to refer to preaching to the church? I'm not saying preaching to the church is not important. I'm saying that when we look at the New Testament, preaching seems to be primarily proclaiming the gospel in public places to the lost. Now think about what if we started thinking about preaching in that way? And we started realizing that all of us have been commanded and sent to preach. Now, we haven't all been called and commanded to pastor. But we've all been commanded and sent to preach, proclaim the gospel message. Whether you're a woman or a man or a youth or a senior adult or middle-aged, single, married. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have been commanded to preach, to proclaim the gospel in the public square to the lost. What if we all became preachers? Proclaimers. What would that do? That's what we've been sent to do. Who has He sent? He sent us all. Where has He sent us? From Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth, those unreached and those unreached and unengaged peoples. And He sent us with a message, the gospel message. And I want to ask you, before we move on to the last two strands of this cord, how many of us can honestly say tonight, That we have written God a blank check with our lives. I think maybe for the first time over these last few years, 
I can say as well as I know myself, which may not be well and it's definitely not perfectly, but I believe more than ever I've given God a blank check on my life. And I said, I will stay at First Baptist Tullahoma till I'm old and gray or they run me off. I will go to a smaller church. I will plant a church. I will move to Zimbabwe, Timbuktu, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, Tunisia. I will do whatever, wherever, whenever. Just fill it in. It's kind of free. I'm not in control. Just, I'm at the Lord's disposal. Well, how many of us can, can say, look into our hearts tonight and say, I'm willing to write the Lord a blank check with my life. Now, now, honestly, we're supposed to have already done that when we denied ourselves remember that part jesus said anyone who would come after me must deny himself take up his cross in other words be willing to die and follow me i want to ask you if jesus were to manifest on this earth today somewhere like he did two thousand years ago he came to this earth and he chose to come to Bethlehem and to the Jerusalem area. If he were to be here today, knowing what we know about Jesus, who came to preach good news to the poor, to set the captive free, to give sight to the blind, where would Jesus be right now? I mean, would he be in Middle Tennessee, honestly? Or would he be? Or would he be somewhere where there's great, great need? Not the kind of need where people need some food as they talk on their free cell phone, given to them by the government. But would he be in a place where there's gospellessness, pain, suffering, and emptiness? Now, if Jesus, I'm just thinking to myself. Where would Jesus be if he were here today? And why aren't more of us, quote-unquote, followers following him there? I mean, it sounds good to say, follow Jesus. I'm going to deny myself, take up my cross, follow Jesus. I'll buy a shirt. I'll put a fish symbol on the back of my car. But I mean, if we're followers of Jesus, why aren't more of us following him where he would be today if he were here? In the flesh. Going. I'll move on. Before we surrender to full-time missions, right? Wouldn't that be cool, though? It would. Second strand of this threefold cord is praying. Now, I'm not going to spend as much time here. And you, that's a good place to say amen. I'm not going to spend as much time here on praying or giving. But please do not think... That because I'm not spending as much time on them, that they're not as important. Praying actually may be more important. Because I don't know of one single missionary who's gone overseas who felt like they had enough prayer support. So don't underestimate the importance and the necessity of praying. I want to just show you how important it is. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus looks out at, at the crowds and he sees crowds that are distressed. The Greek word there means battered, bruised, worn out, exhausted. He sees them distressed. He sees them dispirited, literally in the Greek, dead or helpless. And he sees them as sheep 
without a shepherd. They've just been left to the wolves, and he feels compassion. His gut is, is wrenched over them, literally, as he looks out at them. And there's a huge problem. In Mark, Matthew 9, 37 and 38, the, there's all of these distressed and dispirited people who are like sheep without a shepherd. And yet this harvest that he sees is plentiful, he says. And yet the laborers are few. The problem is not the harvest. The problem is the laborers are few. And what is the answer he gives us in verse number 38? Here's the answer. Therefore, because there's such a great need, and because the harvest is so plentiful, and because the laborers are so few, therefore beseech, earnestly pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Here's what Jesus said. He didn't say, hey guys, go get them. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to earnestly pray, beseech the Lord of the harvest, the owner of the harvest to send out, and that word there, that Greek word is ekbalo, and that's not the waiter at the Mexican restaurant you like to go to. That is actually a Greek word, ekbalo, that means squeeze out, fling out, drive out. So he said, you go to the Lord of the harvest, God, sovereign Lord, and you say, I pray that you would squeeze people out of my churches, squeeze people out of their comfort zones, drive people out like you drove the the money changers out of the temple with your whip, drive them out of here to go get them, Lord. Praying is not a minor thing, especially if it's right praying. When you pray that way, it's hard to put a PS on the end of it and be like, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the guy. I mean, actually, when you get to Matthew 10, after Jesus told them to pray that, he says, he sent them out two by two. You know, it's the beginning of, of our heart change. It's not just about missions, and it's not just about the harvest, and it's not just about the laborers who are there, but when we pray this way, our hearts begin to change. And God has to force us to stay when we pray this way. Praying. Thirdly, giving. If we get these three, three strands of this cord together, I think we'll see a, a revolution in missions. Going, praying, and giving. William Carey, the father of the modern day missions movement, told His elders at his church, as they were getting ready to send him out, I will go down into the well if you agree to hold the ropes. Hold the ropes. Hold the ropes of prayer and hold the ropes in financial support. That's a major thing, financial support. Jerry Rankin, who was... One of the former presidents of the International Mission Board, who I count as a friend, he, he lived in the town I came from where we planted our church. He came over and helped us do some things at the church. He, he's, he's a wise man who knows missions. I was reading in his book, Spiritual Warfare, and he wrote something that kind of got under my skin a little bit. I haven't told him about it yet, but I will. <clears throat> and, and he was writing about when the, the International Mission Board was sending more missionaries than they'd ever sent. And they were utilizing all of the funds that were coming in to just send more and more and more missionaries. And he tells about some missionaries who had been on the field and they were, you know, one vehicle, 
They don't have the greatest luxuries. They're struggling and they're suffering to an extent who filed a complaint, so to speak, with their leadership. And they said, why do you keep sending more missionaries with these funds when you can take better care of us on the field with those funds? And boy, it just got all over me. I thought, here you are, a missionary on the field, and you have the audacity. You should have a better understanding than anybody, and you have the audacity to say, hey, stop sending new people. Give us faster Wi-Fi, or whatever it was they were. I don't know what they need. Stop sending new people. Take better care of us. That just crawled all over me. For about 30 seconds... Until the Holy Spirit took a knife and stabbed me through the heart and twisted it. Because here's what he said. Isn't that what every single one of you in America do every time you increase your standard of living and you get a pay raise? Don't send more missionaries. Or take better care of me. I got a raise. I think I'll buy that new car. I got a raise. I think I'll update my wardrobe. I got a new raise. I think I'll do these new things that I've always wanted to do. We're absolutely no different than those poor missionaries on the field who probably live well below what most of us live. We were saying, please, can we not just get a little pay raise here? And yet we're sitting here taking our pay raises and spending it on ourselves. We're no better than they are. We're worse. We're worse. We should be giving. We should be giving to see the mission accomplished. Now listen, listen. If you go down, if Tim McGee goes down in a well, and I'm holding the rope, there's going to there's be some blisters on my hand. He's a big boy. There's going to be some blisters on his hand from holding on. And there's going to be some blisters on my hand from holding my hand in the rope. I think our blisters would probably be equal. So when William Carey says, I'll go down in the well if you hold the ropes, we need to think about this. If we're priding ourselves on holding the ropes, we need to have equal blisters to the folks who are down in the well. Oh, they make such great sacrifices to go. We ought not to be able to say that. We ought not to be able to talk about how great a sacrifice the missionaries make going. We ought to be able to say, we're making equal sacrifice here to make sure they're well taken care of. You see what it would do to missions? If we were goers, really? If we were prayers, really? And if we were givers, really? Let's be churches that go and that pray and that give until the least reached peoples on the globe are reached. One more thing Jerry Rankin said, and we'll pray. He said, based on all of his knowledge and research and statistics, we could, we have the potential to be the generation that sees the last of the people groups reached with the gospel. If we'll just do it. Let's do it.
Let's do it. Father, we thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. We thank you that you have come not just for Westerners, not just for folks that look like us, talk like us, act like us, that we're comfortable with, but you have come for those who we may be the most uncomfortable around. Those who have never heard your name even. Those who don't know you, who have no way to know you if we don't go to them. God, help us to go, to write a blank check with our lives. Help us to pray like never before. Help us to give with equal sacrifice for the glory of your name and the advancement of your kingdom on this earth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen.